Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. What does it mean to sleep on a Canadian mattress? It means going to bed knowing the mattress you're on was ethically made, locally sourced, and, well, affordable. For 50 bucks off any Endy mattress, go to endy.ca slash oppo and use the promo code OPPO. From Canada land, this is Oppo. On this week's show, we do our very best Rex Murphy impressions and give you a cross-country checkup. From the abubulant shores of the West Coast, from the itinerant towns of Newfoundland, we check in with the partisan parties with the most populous power. That was really good, actually. That was really (laughs) impressive. From the eco-socialists in Canada's tiniest province... To the new Grand Pumba of Alberta... We give you the rundown on what's happening from coast to coast to coast to coast. Wait, when do we get a new coast? Kenny's working on it. Have you heard of Endy, the most comfortable mattress you've never slept on? The Canadian Endy mattress is made with unique open-air cell foam, which provides the perfect balance of support and comfort, pressure relief, and motion transfer resistance. So when you roll around, your partner doesn't feel anything, provided you're lucky enough to have a partner. Unlike traditional memory foam, ND foam is not temperature sensitive. That means you can expect consistent foam firmness year-round throughout every Canadian season. Plus, ND foam releases body heat faster than conventional foam, ensuring a cool and comfortable sleep all night long. ND offers a 100-night trial with free returns so that you can test your mattress in the comfort of your own home instead of some really awkward big-box showroom floor where you don't know what to do with your shoes. The return process during the 100-night trial is super simple. If you don't absolutely love it, they will come right to your door and pick it up from you. They give you a full refund, no questions asked. 
with free shipping to every Canadian province in a box about the size of a hockey bag. Endy is Canada's best-selling mattress, with the highest rate of customer satisfaction and the lowest rate of returns. For $50 off any mattress, go to endy.ca slash oppo and use the promo code oppo, O-P-P-O. Jen, sometimes we get accused on the show of spending a little bit too much time paying attention to the latte-sipping Tesla-driving holier-than-now yuppies of Toronto and Calgary, and not enough time speaking to the monster truck-loving yokels in flyover country. Hey, wait a minute. I thought I was a monster truck-loving yokel in flyover country. All of us have a little bit of monster truck-loving yokel inside of us. In this country, more unites us than divides us, okay? But after last week's election in Alberta, we could be on the cusp of a whole new federal shit show with all the conservative premiers on one side and all the liberal premiers on the other side, like a high school dance from hell. So I thought it would be smart, Jen, this week to go province by province and see what's up, who's running these tiny little fiefdoms, and are we on the cusp of a Canadian civil war? Let's start on the West Coast. This is your territory. Tell me, what the fuck's up in BC? I mean, we seem to be days away from them erecting a wall between BC and Alberta. I mean, we already have the mountains there. So, I mean, that helps a lot with most of the province. (laughs) It really, it does make uh, traveling from province to province more difficult. If I learned anything from Game of Thrones, you can still put a giant wall through the mountains. Did you learn that from Game of Thrones? The wall was like on pretty flat territory and it was built by magic. I think that that was sort of the lesson. Would that make Alberta? Alberta's beyond the wall or BC is beyond the wall? Depends on where your starting point is, really. (laughs) Okay, what's up in BC? I mean, you know, obviously the last election there didn't produce a majority government. We have one of Canada's only first coalition governments. How's it going? I think it's safe to say that it's pretty hit and miss. From what I can tell reading other people's work and analysis on this, that last election in Nanaimo kind of shook that NDP-Green alliance a little bit. Because, of course, every time there's a by-election, you've got the NDP vying for more seats, potentially against the Green Party, right? They're supposed allies. So we're now expecting a a by-election in Nanaimo Ladysmith. Could it deliver another green seat? Maybe. My understanding is that the breakdown of of the legislature right now is that it's 41 NDP, 3 green, 42 liberal, and then one independent who's the Speaker of the House. So one single by-election isn't necessarily going to shift the balance of power. However... As I said, every single time there is one of these by-elections, the NDP gets to gauge exactly how ready the Greens and the Liberals are for a potential snap, right? So my guess is that probably that coalition holds for at least another year, at least until there's another confidence motion. Yeah, and of course, if you're the Greens, you're probably a little freaked out because if you saw the results of that by-election, the NDP actually managed to improve their vote share and the Green vote just absolutely collapsed. Exactly. And if you're the NDP and you really want out of this coalition situation and you just want to be able to maintain power, it's got to be enormously tempting to just call the snap and hopefully the chips will fall uh, a little bit better this time. The downside to all of this is that most governments that call early elections, particularly this early into their mandate, tend to fall. The voters really don't like voting. It's kind of the weird paradoxes of Canadian politics, right? So it's a really high risk, high reward move. And if they can maintain this alliance with the Greens, it probably behooves them to do so at least for another year. It's going to be interesting because obviously, you know, the early, you know, the early year of John Horgan's mandate, not a lot happened. I mean, you saw him trying to kind of finagle new policies to temper down uh, housing costs in Vancouver specifically. You know, you saw him kind of negotiate the thorny politics around the Site C Dam, basically screwing over his uh, coalition partner in the process. And you didn't really get a strong sense that John Horgan had this, you know, broader vision for what he was doing with the province. But now it seems like his whole raison d'etre is picking a fight with Alberta. I mean, first it was his 
his own party mate in Rachel Notley, and now he has a much scarier boogeyman to fight with in Jason Kenney. Well, and vice versa, right? I mean, the thing what really distinguished John Horgan's um, tenure for the last couple of years has been his fight on Trans Mountain Pipeline. And terribly ironically, BC's and transgents on the Trans Mountain Pipeline is probably a huge part of what wound up sinking Rachel Notley. And that that's worth pointing out that a lot of the reason why Kenny's come to power as powerfully as it has is a direct result of the way that BC's responded on Trans Mountain, which of course Horgan needed to do in order to maintain the green alliance that kept him in power. So it's a, it's sort of a, a weird, fascinating little chess game that's kind of going on between the two provinces. You know, even just the relationship between the NDP and the Green Party, I think it's absolutely fascinating because, uh, as we're going to talk about a little bit on the East Coast, the Greens are just absolutely cannibalizing NDP support in some small part because the uh, the Greens are basically running on a very NDP platform. You know, it's big stuff. It's, you know, $15 minimum wage. It's pharmacare, dental care, you know, all of the Mulcares uh, that you remember from the last campaign. Um, and in BC, it really does feel like the NDP is trying to run that sort of bland, palatable, middle of the road, pablum sort of campaign. And the Greens are just basically sticking to their guns and are, are kind of eating the NDP's lunch a little bit. Obviously, Premier Horgan has the incumbency there. He's going to have a huge kind of uh, stick with which to beat the Greens. But I think one big test of whether or not, you know, the Greens actually can translate this sort of grassroots electricity into something more meaningful is actually the federal by-election that's upcoming in Nanaimo Ladysmith. Obviously, the incumbent MP there went to run provincially, so there's kind of been a dual by-election in that riding. But federally, if the Greens can steal that riding away from the NDP, it's going to be huge. I mean, that is the test as to whether or not the Greens really are able to sort of steal that thunder away from the NDP. Last election, they didn't quite break 20%. Their candidate from last time is running again. If you see them even come in second, I think it's absolutely going to put a whole bunch of ridings throughout British Columbia in play and really going to just poke Jugmeet Singh in the chest and say, you know, it's it's on. Well, I mean, that's exactly what the left needs. Yet another vote split. That, that'll be that'll be great. Well, I mean, maybe that is exactly what the NDP needs to get off its ass and actually run a campaign of some kind. Because honestly, where the fuck are they? Let me tell you how that worked out in Alberta with the Alberta party. Tell me how it worked out in Alberta. Tell me how it worked out in Alberta. Kenny won with a very, very strong majority. Did he? <laughs> he did, yes. Like, look, even from talking about our previous episodes when we talked about Alberta, like I was like, look, don't ever make predictions on Alberta because it's an extremely volatile electorate, but it usually tends toward the most interesting outcome. And I will be honest, this UCP win is probably the most interesting outcome. It's not the most interesting electoral outcome, but it's going to lead to the most interesting four years, because I think that what we have elected here in this province is a premier who has every incentive to pick fights and just be a giant asshole to the rest of Canada. And that's exactly what Albertans are expecting from him. I think I'm surprised that Kenny managed to pull it off to the degree to which he did. Obviously, the polls, you know, the last show we did, I pointed out the NDP were ascendant. They had the momentum. That momentum stalled pretty much the day yeah, after we recorded our episode. Yeah. So obviously, you know, they they totally floundered. They ended up kind of losing some of their vote from the last election. Kenny perfectly consolidated both the uh, former progressive conservative and the Wild Rose vote into an over 50% of the popular vote and absolutely ran away with it. The Alberta party, it looks like, actually stole votes from the NDP, not from Kenny. So there's not even that narrative of sort of the, the centrist, center-right uh, voters fleeing Kenny because they were afraid. No, it was the centrist voters. If they came out, they came out for the Alberta party and didn't manage to turn it into a single seat. Exactly. So like it was actually, if you were a centrist, a pretty grim election. You know who I'm going to put on blast right here? You know who I am? Who? Us. 
I think it's understandable that you know all the media, including our show, focus on those bozo eruptions because I think they're really indicative of this question out there about whether or not you know some candidates are fit for public office if they hold certain views. That said, maybe it's time we we stop focusing so aggressively on these bozo eruptions and actually kind of force parties to run real campaigns and not just point out at how shitty some of the other guys' candidates are. Well, I, I mean, it just didn't. It failed for the NDP. So if you're taking the NDP strategy here and replicating it going into the federal and you're the federal liberals, I mean, you're that's a bad yeah, strategy. Bad. Yeah. But the thing that I would point out is yes and no. Like if I go back and I look at the bozo eruptions, some of the bozo eruptions that got a lot of play in Alberta were either thin or when you understood the backstory, it was really messy. You know, was there an overfocus on the bozo eruptions among the media overall? Probably I'd say there probably wasn't as as much analysis on the uh, economic front, which is what Albertans really, really cared about, as there probably could and should have been. I think there are a lot of interesting reasons why that was. But that being said, some of those bozo eruptions actually weren't thin. Some of those bozo eruptions were actually a major problem and deserved to be dissected. The problem is that when you have, you know, especially partisan media and affiliated media, like going to ground on every single super thin bozo eruption, what happens is that the electorate just kind of tunes it out. And they're just like, this is just character assassination. I don't really have to pay attention to this. Well, that's right. And I, you know, I think covering the unbelievably stupid or offensive things candidates say is fair game, but it also has to be complemented with actual election coverage. And, and you know, honestly, the media is only as good as, as what they're given, right? Like, the NDP didn't run a substantive campaign. Yeah. Jason Kenney's campaign was largely built on just screaming at a cardboard cutout of Justin Trudeau. I mean, there wasn't much campaign there to cover. So I guess I'm just sort of looking back and realizing how frustrating that election was. What's worse is that I don't even think either of the candidates truly believed what they were doing. I don't really believe... Both of these candidates, both of them, Kenny and Notley both, were better than the campaigns they ran. Exactly. You know, there's some old Kurt Vonnegut quote that goes roughly like, you must be careful what you pretend to be because we are what we pretend to be. And Jason Kenny is now stuck in the mold of being this fire-breathing nut job. And Rachel Notley backed herself into a corner of entirely uh, running a campaign of saying, if this guy wins, he's going to, you know, burn down your garage. Yeah, you should just get your handmaiden dresses out right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's enough time talking about Alberta. We talk about Alberta too much, and I am so tired of Alberta. Jen, get in the car. We're going to the prairies. Excellent. That's exactly what I want to do. Flatland, straight into the sunset. (laughs) Or straight into the sunrise, I guess, if I'm going from here. Oh, God, straight into oblivion. What's going on there? Well, firstly, uh, in certain provinces, they curve the roads so that you don't fall asleep when you drive. That's not what I meant. Um, Okay, so there's a couple of interesting things going on in there. I mean, the thing that strikes me as worth keeping an eye on is in Manitoba. There is some chatter that Brian Pallister, who's, of course, the PC premier right now, might call a snap election this spring. And I'm kind of puzzling as to why, because it seems like there's a whole bunch of weird answers about this. When he's um, dropped this hint that he was going to do this before, he was saying, well, it's our centennial celebration in 2020 when we were supposed to have our election scheduled. And I've heard from a lot of people who say that they don't really want to be mixing a celebration with an election, which is divisive. And then, like, lately, he's also come out and said, well, you know, we really want to get this uh, sales tax cut done before July 1st. So if the NDP obstructs it somehow, which I'm not sure how they would do, there's, I mean, the PCs have a a strong majority. But if they obstruct it somehow, then, you know, we are going to have to call an early election. It's just kind of bizarre as to why. Like, they don't have to call another election till fall of next year. And I kind of wondering if it's just either... Something is about to come out in the next year or two that they know is going to be really damaging. Or I'm wondering if it's just Pallister is seeing this blue wave uh, hit across the provinces and just wants to like crest on that momentum. I did a uh, profile for Pallister from McLean's and I got to meet with him and I I enjoyed talking to him. He's a bit of an oddball. He's an odd guy, um, which I kind of caught on to because I too am an odd person. 
But at the same time, I don't think there's any doubt that at this point, if he were to call a snap, he'd probably win. Like he seems to be the the far and ahead favorite ahead of uh, Wabkinu, who's the head of the NDP right now. It, that really surprises me. I mean, maybe it's not all that shocking, but over the last several polls, you know, there's been a handful of polls done over, early in the winter and in the spring, and all of them consistently show Brian Pallister north of 40 percent, um, the NDP struggling somewhere around 30 and everyone else behind that. It surprises me kind of only because, you know, Wab Canoe represented that kind of wing of the NDP that everyone had been waiting for, that kind of perfect embodiment of an NDP leader. You know, he he's indigenous, he's he's young, you know, he's uh, dynamic, you know, he kind of comes out forcefully, speaks plainly, and he just has fallen apart. I mean, I don't know if he's not breaking through, if, you know, people just don't seem to be all that attracted to him, if the fact that he's young is turning people off. Maybe it's just, you know, Manitoba is no longer a province that is willing to contemplate voting NDP, or at least not for the stable future. Yeah, I think it's actually probably not Webb Canoe's fault. My suspicion is that probably he had the misfortune of taking over the party after Greg Selinger. Mm. And the last few years of Greg Selinger's reign was such a chaotic tire fire that, you know, I think the ADP was going to take a term or two to have to you know get yeah, a handle fair. on itself, regardless of who the leader actually was. So, I, I mean, I, I think right now, like, Manitoba is definitely a province that's just looking for stability. And I think that they're willing to sort of vote for this kind of oddball conservative premier, as long as he doesn't do anything too radical or too out there. And kind of roll with it. But as I said, that's just why I find this chatter about an early election to be so puzzling. Like, I don't strategically understand, I don't quite understand it. And it just makes me wonder if there's something coming out, maybe around Manitoba Hydro or something, like if there's something to come that they don't want to be taking into an election. Well, and we're going to likely see a Saskatchewan election probably around the same time if he ends up going early. I mean, they're scheduled to go next year, but obviously the Premier Scott Moe has never actually, you know, run in a campaign before. He took over from Grand Czar of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall. And it's exactly the same situation in Manitoba. The NDP have been completely incapable. Their poll numbers have actually gone down significantly since the start of the year. They're hovering around 30%, which in a two-party system is pretty shitty. The Saskatchewan party is upwards of 50%. There's virtually no optimism from anybody that uh, the Saskatchewan party is going to be turfed from office despite being in power for a good long while. Has the Prairies just completely turned its back to the idea that, you know, that the NDP are even a viable option or has the NDP just totally alienated the prairies so aggressively that it's just they fucked themselves over? I would broaden that out to the West more specifically. I mean, I think that there are bad memories of NDP governments in the West, right? They tend to be associated with economic decline and stagnation. And then what you have is, you know, on the whole, reasonably competent, I put a big asterisk on that one, conservative governments that come into power and they tend to be associated with times of you know comparative economic prosperity and growth. That said, I think there's ups and downs in these things as there always are. Like, you know, when you're in a two-party system as most prairie provinces are uh, or have evolved into, you have periods of 10 to 15 years of, of conservative governments and then 10 to 15 years of more progressive governments. And the two parties are, are viable and they're more or less competitive and they just kind of play off of one another. And that's kind of healthy. Like, I think that that's, that's healthier than having... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com a scenario where you have one party just sort of 
dominate in a province for generations and generations, which is what we saw happen in Alberta. We're going to take a break and then we're going to go to Ontario, which I believe is actually applied to join the West. Uh, I believe their application is pending, but uh, assuming it gets signed off by uh, the three prairie provinces, I think Doug Ford is going to become the, the fourth Western premier. You know, and it's a viable option so long as they're willing to leave Ottawa behind. <laughs> and everyone always is. Life insurance. It's an essential part of any financial plan because, newsflash, we're all going to die. The best time to get life insurance is when someone depends on you. For most people, that's when they get married or when you start having kids. But buying life insurance in Canada can also be the worst. It's time consuming. There's no transparency. There's a whole bunch of big banks and retailers you have to deal with, and I don't trust any of them. And there's an endless supply of weird questions and stacks of paperwork. These big banks don't make it easy. People end up overpaying, getting the wrong coverage, they don't understand what they got, or they end up without life insurance altogether, and when they die, everyone they love is screwed. But now all that is changing. PolicyMe.com is a free online service offering Canadians honest advice about their life insurance needs. Life insurance is not just a should I buy decision. Figuring out what should I buy is just as important. PolicyMe has an easy tool for you to find out what insurance you need. Thousands of Canadians have seen up to 50% savings by getting honest advice and comparing quotes from top providers. Better yet, apply online with PolicyMe. Free of hassle, free of charge, feel confident that you and your family are fully protected in an easy and affordable way. Visit PolicyMe.com oppo and get a free life insurance recommendation in five minutes. All right, Jen, so... I'm taking over now. I'm getting in the driver's seat and we're going east from Ontario. Now, if you've followed Ontario politics recently, you would know that it's bad, uh, that everything is bad. Doug Ford has shown himself not all that good at governing. I mean, you know, whoever would have thunk it, who would have figured that, you know, his slightly unhinged chief of staff would have uh, governed exactly from the center and kind of run roughshod over every kind of reasonable voice in the party. Who who would have imagined all of this? Are you telling me that Doug Ford has not been fine, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Jen, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. You said it. Actually, you know what? I didn't say it. The headline writer said it, okay? All right? Okay, so, so I, I will say, you've probably heard a fair bit of really awful news from Ontario, and, and it's all true. The one thing I, I will point out, Doug Ford delivered a budget uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and by and large, it was actually pretty reasonable. I, I've been told that it basically was written out of the Treasury Board President's office and that the Premier was just kind of fine with most of it. It is overall a pretty reasonable progressive conservative budget. There's not a lot of poison pills in there. There's a couple of things that have had people uh, freaking out, and I think rightfully so. But overall, you're not seeing Doug Ford's fingerprints all over their spending plan, which is you know letting people take a bit of an exhalation because this is such a relief. But that being said, there is a couple of crazy things that you may or may not have seen over the last couple of weeks. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen the autism stuff. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that has been a mess for months. I mean, long before the budget came, Doug Ford's, you know, really inept handling of cuts to autism services uh, and replacing them with, uh, you know, basically a tax credit that no one is buying into has been an absolute disaster and shows you how just not ready they were to govern and just how little they understood mm -hmm. the, the machinations of government. You know, on top of that, Doug Ford is now promising to mandate stickers on every gas pump in the province and forming. Which, there is no way that holds up to a constitutional. No, the, the, you, the can't, that's the, you can't do compel a government compelled speech on a private business. That's insane. 
You said the magic word of the week, Jen. It's government compelled government speech. Government compelled speech. Woo! Y'all can't see it now, but there's balloons coming down from the <laughs> ceiling. Oh, there's also there was a party clown up there, and he's unfortunately dead. Um, but yeah, of course, Doug Ford is mandating anti-carbon tax stickers on every gas pump in the province, and any business that does not comply is going to get smacked with a, a huge fine that obviously will make it not viable to not do this. It is completely insane. It will not survive a charter challenge. It is bonkers. It is the government forcing businesses to push propaganda, and that coming from a supposedly open-for-business government is fucking nuts. Well, it's also completely crazy coming from a conservative government, let's also be blunt. Like, the idea that, you know, the conservatives are on the side of free speech, you know, the flip side of that is not compelled speech. (laughs) You know, like, like that is not a conservative idea at all. That is is an authoritarian idea. And beyond that, I mean, on more serious things, uh, in this budget, there were deep cuts to legal aid Ontario that is going to make it very, very hard for the province to provide basically free lawyers for people who desperately need them. Um, And the people who are going to get hit most by this are going to be refugee claimants. Is is that a play for more resources from uh, Ottawa on the refugee immigration file? Yes, it is. 100% is. But that doesn't matter because, you know, right now the money's not there and Legal Aid Ontario has had to put a stop to providing legal aid for refugee claimants, which is devastating. It's heartless. It's insane. It's not saving the province that much money. It's completely detrimental to, you know, how our immigration and our legal system works. Um, Yes, the federal government should provide more money for that, but that does not mean the province gets to shirk its responsibilities to do the same. And it's it's bonkers. And a lot of legal aid groups and refugee groups were absolutely gobsmacked by this news. It also came basically the same week the federal government announced that they were going to be changing the Safe Third Country Agreement, stopping a lot of people from making their claims. So those Oh my goodness. And do I completely want to unpack that in a totally separate show? Next show, but I mean, you know, it's pretty galling to watch the government spend four years saying it would be heartless to do something only to do it. Uh, pretty it's fucked. Pretty galling. It's pretty galling pretty for fucked. a government to try and gain moral victory and moral points over its opponents on exactly that file, only to turn around and like put in that legislation in an omnibus bill. I will oh, also point that out. Like yeah. that's ridiculous. Anyway, going eastward. La Belle Provence, Jen, we're going to Quebec, really where there's only one big story, apart from a little bit of squabbling with Jason Kenney. Uh, Francois Legault has decided the story of this year is going to be another fucking turn around the Maypole on the secularist charter. Oh my God, fuck me. This is the worst. So this is just racism, right? Can we just point out this is racism or is that too Anglo of me? <sighs> I will simultaneously say yes, that's too Anglo of you, but also yes, it's just racism, but also there's kind of more to it, but also it's still just racist. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) And we're cut. (laughs) I think my distinction would be that it is racist, it is a racist policy, and I don't buy anyone who's telling me it's not racist, but the motivations for it are not necessarily racist. It's just the effect of it is racist. Exactly, right? The motivations aren't racist, even though the motivations sound kind of racist, but the actual effect is racist. And when it's pointed out that the effect is racist, that doesn't seem to shift the apparent public motivations. Yeah. Wait, what? Let's let maybe just explain what this charter is. You go to Montreal and talk to a lot of, you know, socialists, feminists who will tell you that, you know, this sort of uh, secularist charter is necessary. They don't want to police necessarily how, uh, you know, women wearing the niqab or men wearing the kirpan on the street, you know, go about their daily lives. But they do believe the state. Having been a state that aggressively enforced uh, Catholicism for a long time should now be neutral in every sense of the word, should be almost, you know, stern faced, uh, gray, you know, uniform. And that that is the so way now to they should actually... aggressively enforce non-Catholicism. <laughs> Well, and they kind of are. And some people would actually say, yes, take down the cross in the National Assembly, as they're actually planning to do. Yes, there should be bans on people wearing uh, crosses and crucifixes. So th- there is some intellectual consistency amongst many who propose this sort of thing. That doesn't mean the effect is not 
crazy racist because it is because you are hurting the very people who are most vulnerable in society even though Quebec can absolutely brag that it is uh, more multicultural than Ontario that it is welcoming to refugees uh, and immigrants especially those who are not white but at the yes, same time as long time, as they fit in well that's as it as long and as I mean, they fit in and start acting Quebecois well and that's long been Quebec's position Quebec has always said we are not a mosaic we are functionally a melting pot we believe in a form of integration not necessarily assimilation but integration into Quebec society and to do that you um, need to speak French and you need to kind of identify as Quebecer and recognize that the state is religiously neutral. And I think that's a reasonable-ish position. I think trying to enforce that through forcing women to change what they wear is fucked up. It's really well, fucked up. And also, up. I mean, the reason why this is such a weird position is that it's one thing to ask someone to take off a crucifix. I mean, I was raised Catholic myself. I own a crucifix. But exactly. But taking off a necklace is not the same thing to a Catholic as taking off a hijab or a niqab is exactly. to a Muslim woman. Those are two fundamentally different requests that impinge upon someone's lifestyle and, and choices around modesty in very different ways. All that said, it is interesting that Legault is, is still kind of carrying this on. He could have not done this and I think would have gotten away with it. He could have just completely skipped over this part of his platform and been just fine. The fact that he's drawing it out is obviously showing that he's getting some political mileage out of it. And and I do wonder if this is going to potentially inform federal parties who want to operate in Quebec, whether it's the conservatives or the liberals. And that's that is unnerving to me. You know, that being said, the opposition being waged by the city of Montreal, by a number of politicians in that province is heartening. There may yet be a constitutional challenge to this, uh, whether it's under the federal charter or Quebec's own charter, which also protects religious liberties, it may yet get struck down. So, you know, this is something to watch. But unfortunately, this is consuming all oxygen in Quebec right now. And that's really disappointing. Legault could always try and change the channel by pivoting to Kenny in Alberta. Yeah, it I mean, looks like both uh, premiers are going to get a lot of mileage out of hating the other province. I mean, that is an interesting question about whether or not Kenny actually wants to fight Quebec. What do they have to fight about? Energy East is functionally dead. Kenny's fight is with the federal government. And actually, let's move on to our next province, New Brunswick, which has joined the unholy alliance of the resistance with Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and now Alberta, and of course Ontario, to go toe-to-toe with the federal government. I don't know if I can recall a time over the last several decades that you've seen this level of interprovincial fight. Fighting. I mean, obviously, some of the premiers tried to poke Stephen Harper in the eye every once in a while, but not in this such a concerted way. I mean, no, this is an alliance. This is a conservative alliance that's forming across the country against Trudeau. So, of course, the premier of New Brunswick, uh, Blaine Higgs, came to power on a, a relatively conservative platform. But, of course, he didn't win a majority. He's barely clinging on to power. He's only in office thanks to the help of Chris Austin and, and the New Brunswick People's Party, which is quite a, a right-wing, sort of populist, anti-Francophone, honestly, party that, that managed to win three seats in the last election and is, is basically holding the balance of power for Higgs. So. New Brunswick, I don't think, is normally this acclimatized to such a right-wing government. And the fact they're now basically allied with Doug Ford and Jason Kenney, I think, is is quite odd, especially for this province. Um, the fact that they're running such a crusade against the federal carbon tax and carbon pricing, it's odd. Like, this is all really bizarre. Again, we've not seen this sort of, you know, pan-Canadian alliance running against the federal government in some time, and it's it's unusual. They're just not used to winning, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the culture of defeat has turned itself around, hasn't it? Welcome to the winning team, New Brunswick. <laughs> hey, I know you have also been in Prince Edward Island for the last little while talking about the election there, and I'm very curious. So uh, what's going on? Weirdly, the East Coast is this sort of um, crucible of green support that I don't think anyone would have predicted two years ago. You know, in New Brunswick, the same time as that right wing party, the People's Alliance, won three seats. So did the Greens. David Kuhn, this environmentalist, managed to you know pick up three seats in New Brunswick, of all places. Meanwhile, in PEI, you've actually seen 
a huge upswing of support for the Green Party. If the polls are to be believed, the Green Party could form government, potentially a majority government on Tuesday. Now, we're recording the show on Monday. Our show comes out on Tuesday. So uh, you could be listening to this on Wednesday. And if the Greens form government, we look real smart. If they didn't, you know, PEI's uh, electoral system is quite wonky. <laughs> Justin, the Oracle speaks again. Well, this is the first time I've actually called for a party that's actually leading in the polls. I always pick the underdog like a fucking moron. But I was. I was in PEI for the last several days. I just got back today. It's really fascinating out there. It has got to be one of the most collegial, friendly, cooperative, thoughtful election campaigns I've seen ever, I think. You know, it's such a fascinating contrast to Alberta, which was one of the most mean-spirited, shitty, small, tiny elections I've ever seen. The election in PEI is amicable. It's friendly. Actually, quite tragically, on Friday evening, a Green Party candidate and his young son uh, drowned in a canoe accident. Every single party, without needing to be told or asked, shut down their campaigns Every single local campaign office was closed. Nobody was canvassing. All of the rallies were canceled. All the parties were canceled. And there was this huge outpouring of support for this guy's family. He had friends. He knew the premier. He knew um, the, the leader of the NDP. They were, you know, these people were friends. He seemed to know everyone in the province. I couldn't go two steps in PEI without finding somebody who knew him really personally. But that's just also because everybody knows everybody in PEI. Yeah, but that's what's so nice about it. I, I mean, even if you didn't know him, you knew him through somebody. And it is, I realize that PEI is different. And unique. Um, there's no reason why PEI can't be like the rest of the country. And a lot of the issues in the campaign look so insanely similar to the issues on the federal level. Housing affordability is massive in Charlottetown. Charlottetown has a 0% vacancy rate. There are no free homes in Charlottetown and the government has fucked up on building more. You know, obviously climate change is pretty pertinent for an island that could be partially underwater in the next 50 years. They are, are dealing with, you know, how to uh, resettle a number of Syrian refugees who showed up recently. There are some really interesting questions there. And there's two things I want to highlight really quickly um, that are going to be really interesting to watch for. One is that if the Greens win, they've promised to uh, start a basic income pilot. And PEI is the perfect place to do that. You have a lot of rural folks. There is some uh, working poor. Um, and it's a nice little, you know, microcosm of the country that you can use to see if that project works. Also, more importantly, it's separated by water, so we know that the communism won't spread easily. <laughs> exactly. And it also, I think, signals a bit of a green upswing. And it's funny because it's in a province where the NDP seemed to be the biggest threat to that two-party dichotomy, um, totally fell apart, completely fucked up their chances. The Greens have kind of replaced them as the likely alternative. If you look at the last two provinces in Atlantic Canada, uh, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, not been quite the case. You have in both provinces some of the most unpopular liberal premiers you could ever imagine. Both have approval ratings of under 40%, and there's really no alternative. Both seem set to get reelected over the next couple of years, and it, it's quite bizarre. I mean, throughout Atlantic Canada right now, support for the Liberals is becoming increasingly toxic. You know, it is a place where Justin Trudeau swept every single seat. I would not put stock on that again. There seems to be a just an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with the Liberal Party, especially Trudeau, in all four provinces. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of things change really quickly, whether that's an upswing of support for the Greens, the NDP, or the Conservatives. But it's definitely something to watch because, weirdly, Atlantic Canada might end up being a battleground over the next six months. All right, Justin, you've been talking for way too long, but uh, we do need to talk a little bit about the territories, what's happening up there. Really, really quickly, the Yukon is studying electoral reform. They could be the, the second spot in Canada to do so after PEI if it goes that way. In none of it, Leona Glukuk, former health minister, is for some reason running again, which I don't understand because she's actually quite capable and was wildly mistreated by the Harper government. Good for you, Leona, but why? And finally, in the North and more general, especially in none of it in the Northwest Territories, um, food affordability is still a crazy fucking problem. The federal government pledged to fix it. They really 
honestly haven't. And it's an issue that is such a huge concern in, in the north, and you never hear anything about it south of the 60th parallel. So I thought I'd go ahead and give it a mention, uh, fix it. And that's it. That's the whole country. And we've covered every issue there is to talk about in the entire country. Go ahead, send us an email if you want. I dare you to find a single thing that we got wrong or that we missed. Go on. <laughs> Why would you open yourself up to that, Justin? Why would you do that to yourself? That is it for Oppo. We will be back in two weeks. Commons is back next week. Hopefully I will be recovered from election delirium by then. In the meantime, get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast. Let us know what you think. And only nice things, though. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And the theme music was by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is compelled. Compelled.